With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. The cannabis industry is very fragmented. There's no Coca-Cola, there's no Starbucks. When you look at the fragmentation and you look at being in the fastest growing industry and you look at the currency in which we're using primarily, which is cash, that moves extremely slow. It starts to become really bad for the growth of the industry, especially when you have a solution on the demand side that's really accelerating. I saw that as an opportunity. This is Finding Founders, a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and my journey to find the founders responsible. I'm Samuel Donner, and today on the show, we talk to Keith McCarty, the fourth employee of Yammer, which was acquired for $1.2 billion dollars. The founder of Ease, a company that revolutionized and legitimized the cannabis industry, which he left while it was still growing massively to start an even more exciting company. That company is Wave, a B2B cannabis e-commerce marketplace with a focus on logistics that connects retailers and brands through centralized distribution. Basically, the Amazon of cannabis. Keith's early life seemed fairly ordinary. He grew up in the city of Orange in Southern California to a loving family, but there was a competitive spark within the family unit. Stayed pretty close to home, tight-knit family. My mom's side of the family's from the Midwest, so grew up with those Midwestern values. My dad, definitely, you know, kind of someone that's uh, been hands-on, heavily into, like, mechanics, and he now runs the professional two-wheel racing for Yamaha in the U.S. So definitely uh, was raised around professional athletes and competitiveness, which I think parlays into, we don't like to lose, <laughs> but. But, you know, our household was also super loving. So I think it's the right balance of like pushing people hard and, and being able to be competitive. But at the end of the day, you need to balance that with love and affection and, and kindness. With his family giving him a lot of support early on, Keith started to branch out and started toying around with some early entrepreneurial ventures. And this first one is weird. One word crickets. When my friends were all purchasing or getting reptiles, so like lizards or snakes. <laughs> we had a fad. Uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Boys and like A211. It was, it was pretty popular, at least when I was growing up. But I saw an opportunity, I guess, because they had to keep going to the pet store to buy crickets and all these different things. So I ended up uh, just going out and catching a bunch of crickets and then selling them to my friends to make money. After that, I started a lawn mowing business, you know, sold motorcycles, just, you know, pay for my own car, my first car. Yeah, I think it's just it's about, you know, identifying a need. And then where there's a need, there's an opportunity. Obviously, crickets aren't as big as uh, other opportunities. But I think that when you have that sort of mindset, it starts to become you. That spawns bigger opportunities later in life when your only option isn't to start cricket businesses. <laughs> Although his cricket business wasn't a wild success, Keith attributes this early interest in entrepreneurial endeavors and his ability to identify needs to being genuinely curious 
as a person. I'll tend to kind of sit back and observe and analyze a lot internally. When I decide to do something, then it has a lot of thought behind it. Keith brought some life lessons out of this experience that he carried with him. I kind of got burned out of catching crickets. So (laughs) I guess that's my first lesson that if you're going to start a business, running businesses are very difficult, especially startups. So you got to love what you do and you really have to develop a passion and sort of an ethos behind that because it's almost insane to do a startup, especially a successful one, if, if there's not deeper passion or a deeper mission that's behind Keith went on from catching crickets to Chapman University, where he enrolled in the marketing major and quickly realized that his analytical mind would come in handy, even in the most creative of endeavors. I liked marketing. Marketing seemed like a lot of fun, you know, the creative aspects behind it. But I learned that a lot of marketing is finance. So once again, brought back that analytical part and the data-driven aspect. Even the most creative things sometimes are a lot more complex and analytical than some may even understand. While pursuing his interest in marketing and working full-time at a motorcycle store, he also was introduced to the power of technology specifically social networking, as a powerful tool for people to connect with each other. Well, Facebook in college, for one, I'm a millennial, so we grew up in a somewhat of a technology era, I'd say the leading edge of it, at least for the more progressive social networks. So I think, you know, I was exposed to it. I didn't think about it as a business at that point, but I definitely saw it as a utility, as a value add. And when you didn't have things that made life easier, that allows you to stay connected, I certainly missed it. It's understanding the value of something, and that's essentially the delta between having it or, and not having it. And sometimes... Uh, Uh, When you don't have it, it makes you really understand uh, how valuable that is. That interest in social networking as a technology to connect quickly materialized when Keith joined Genie, his first job out of college. Yeah, out of college, I was evaluating a, a couple different options, you know, what I wanted to move into. But the more that I thought about it, the technology startup environment seemed like a lot of fun. And I certainly started to understand the value, especially going through the interview process of what technology actually did and how it was built from the inside. That seemed really exciting and like a like a challenge to me, but like I said, exciting at the same time. So I joined a company called Genie. The mission is essentially to connect everyone in the world. Everyone's connected, everyone's related. At that time, Facebook hadn't really claimed the friend graph completely, but we knew that they were on like the trajectory to do that. It was starting to become pretty clear that they were going to probably take over MySpace. So we were looking at, well, what are the other parts of the social graph? And we thought that families was certainly another piece. And then coworkers was a third piece. So between friends, family, and coworkers, that's essentially the people that you interact with. Uh, What we didn't realize at the time was that Facebook would also take over the family graph. We initially thought that because it spawned from colleges or universities, that people that were sharing pictures of partying on the weekends wouldn't want their family to be on that social network or part of that graph. While Keith was working at Genie, he came to a realization. He had just graduated from university, where people were diving into social networking with such fervor because it was a convenient and valuable tool you could use to keep in contact with your friends. But when he came to this new work environment... And we have like email, instant messaging, and face-to-face meetings. So we identified that we have all these great tools to collaborate in our daily lives. We get to work, and those aren't available. And that's also about the same time that Twitter was taking off and Facebook was taking off or expanding you know, beyond universities. We just decided to build, for internal purposes, a genie, kind of like a Twitter that was private and secure, just for internal collaboration. And then over the course of, I think it was 
four or five months, we posted about 100,000 messages, and it became a core part of how we collaborated internally. And I think we just started uncovering use cases. Those just became natural parts of how we drove productivity within Genie. Also, interestingly enough, around the same time when we were starting to really utilize the platform, people started asking for this on Twitter. I think a lot of people maybe came up with the idea around the same time, but we had already built it. Every other company didn't have this, and we did. So we viewed that as an opportunity to build or spin it out into its own entity and make it available to, to all companies across the world. Keith quickly saw how much potential was intrinsic within this new company. With this new idea, they went to a conference called TechCrunch 50. The year before at TechCrunch 40, a company called Mint got in and won the conference. Mint was later acquired for $170 million. Keith saw this conference as an incredible opportunity. So we ended up launching at that at that conference, and the first week after we launched, well, one, we, we won the conference. Um, <laughs> and then uh, that first week after we launched, uh, over 10,000 companies signed up to start utilizing the platform. And How did they all know about it so quickly? Well, Yammer was uh, revolutionizing the whole concept around freemium, which has kind of been normalized today, uh, but we were actually the first to, to create a freemium product for the enterprise. So people could just sign up for free, and then we used the same methodology that Facebook used, which was to partition network based on email domain to get them into the private network. So they used that for colleges in the early days. So at harvard.edu, if you could confirm you have access to harvard.edu email address, then they would put you into the Harvard network. Same thing with or at microsoft.com, for example. So that's how you ensure that it's private. We leveraged that approach and then made it freemium and that just became viral. After winning TechCrunch 50, Keith and the team realized that something had to change. There were now two promising companies under the same roof. Well, at first, we were still working you know, at both companies. Very clearly, after we won TechCrunch 50 and 10,000 companies sign up, it's tough enough to run one startup, especially a, a successful one. We made a divide. Genie was still a, a great opportunity, but Yammer just was much larger. As they explored this technology and the applications of this company, they saw they were making a measurable and valuable impact on the companies they were serving. In the beginning, we knew that people would use it. And that's what we proved out through the freemium model that people were getting value to see like people come up with creative ways to, to utilize a product that we never even intended or imagined that it would be used for. So we started to realize it then, but then we started to, to especially realize it when people started really paying for it. So it meant that they weren't just sharing what they had for lunch. They were sharing things that were actually driving ROI for the company. And over time, for some companies, even early on, became transformational. At any age, involvement in a transformational company like Yammer is an incredible achievement. But Keith was an integral member of this massively growing company when he was just 23. Keith had achieved success without ever experiencing the shackles of a corporate lifestyle. And in that way, he was set free. When you were in like the thick of Yammer, how how old were you? I was in my early 20s, so maybe 23 or something. Does that not feel like fast? <laughs> like I'm 22, like right? I'm about to like graduate. You like literally just graduated and you were the fourth person in a massively growing startup. Like how, how did that feel? I think when you're in the moment, especially being a competitor, that's when you rise to the occasion. It felt like I was definitely drinking from the fire hose, but it was fun at the same time. And I think there's a lot of benefits in being young and not having a lot of the, um, 
I don't know, there's this whole concept around invisible boundaries. These boundaries that we create because of org charts or they were the way that they were before because of, you know, management or hierarchy or those were really all the same problems that we were trying to solve with Yammer, which was to break down silos, flatten hierarchy. Being young, I just never really was exposed to that. I jumped right into a startup that was about openness and just analyzing data and being collaborative. And whoever has an idea, there's no stupid idea, but you you better you better come and back it up with, with data to support it. Um, I didn't really have a chance to, to look at this and say, wow, look at this. This is crazy. You had no reference point. Yeah. 80% of the Global 500 ended up using Yammer. Being a kind of early 20-year-old to mid-20-year-old, walking into, you know, Fortune 50 boardrooms where, you know, the CEO is literally r- ripping off his jacket and throwing a Yammer t-shirt over uh, his <laughs> his uh, his suit because he's so happy about uh, utilizing the platform and, and what it's done for his company or what it's, it's going to do in the future. That really was able to be done because, well, one, the platform, but the fearlessness of being able to walk into that CEO's office and not be afraid about, oh my gosh, I'm only a mid-20-year-old and this is one of the, the most successful people in corporate America. That's incredible. A lot of people I've talked to have also said there's value in having a reference point, like being able to see how other companies work is valuable because you you can apply you know those company structures to when you create your own company. It seems like you've lived the opposite of that. Would you recommend young entrepreneurs having a, a reference point? I think I got the reference point through our customers at Yammer. So I saw how large organizations could operate this, you know, in a dysfunctional way. Um, but I also knew the things that could make them operate, you know, more efficiently and effectively and transparently and, and all the things that they need to, to really thrive. Though Yammer was only a few years old, massive companies began to base their collaboration strategy entirely on Yammer. Yammer was fundamentally changing the way companies operated. Yammer's wide utilization would go on to catch the attention of one kind of big company and then lead to their acquisition by that relatively big company. That company was Microsoft. Yammer kind of started as Twitter for the enterprise. It evolved into Facebook for the enterprise. And then it was evolving into kind of your social intranet. And around that time, the deal sizes, the dollar amount of what customers were paying Yammer to utilize the service started becoming, you know, real big. But more impressive is is the fact that, you know, we were uh, just a few years old and uh, starting to have large organizations base their entire collaboration strategy around social, which was fairly new, we we revolutionized that, and around Yammer. They would be going to Microsoft or IBM and saying, you know, we believe in Yammer and we believe in social. How do you work with them? Because you need to figure out how you work around enterprise social networking. And that totally shifted how Microsoft and and others um, really viewed social. It wasn't a toy anymore. It was something that they needed to take seriously. And we started dislodging some of those big organizations, but we had opportunity to, uh, in some cases, had integration with, let's say, Microsoft or some aspects of Microsoft to where we could actually bring them in. And we were the one that was in essence, kind of controlling the deal. There was one deal in particular uh, with Nationwide Insurance that really, I believe, was the tipping point. It was about a couple months before we ended up getting acquired. IBM was in the account. Microsoft was not in the account, but they were trying to get in. Nationwide Insurance had based the entire RFP around Yammer, and we had a tighter integration with Microsoft than IBM. So we wanted to have the best overall solution uh, for Nationwide, and we ended up bringing Microsoft in uh, 
into a compete deal. Can you explain what a compete deal is? IBM's in the account. Microsoft wants to get in the account. If Microsoft gets in, that means IBM's out. So they beat their competitor. They've dislodged their competitor. And they win the deal, meaning that they get revenue. So it's a kind of a double win. So they brought the top executives from Microsoft to help close this deal. It was an important deal. We were out to dinner with them, and, and we were talking about just the power of, of Yammer and how a freemium model could you know, really accelerate Microsoft's efforts by growing virally within these companies and providing an immense amount of value and bringing the rest of Office along with it in a lot of cases. And um, I was sitting <clears throat> across from uh, a gentleman who, who actually did the Skype acquisition for, I think, around $8 billion. And I mentioned around how, you know, Skype is freemium, but voice and that type of data is, is more expensive than messaging. And when you're dealing with that amount of scale, those things really, really do matter. And also, Yammer happened to be, you know, quite a bit more viral. He looked at me in a certain way and said, that is genius. And I, I kind of... <laughs> It's interesting because I still have this email. Uh, that night after we left, I emailed David Sachs and I said, this may sound weird, but I think this may be an acquisition-like opportunity. And uh, four weeks later, we were acquired for $1.2 billion. Just in case you weren't sure if you heard that right, Keith said $1.2 billion with a B. Keith had found his way onto the founding team of a billion-dollar company. He had hit the startup lottery. And while most would retire or at least take a break, Keith soldiered on. After working at Microsoft for a year, Keith was hired as a sales specialist for an analytics and data gathering company known as App Annie. But App Annie was just Keith's billion-dollar business rebound. During his time there, Keith began to focus his attention on the rise of on-demand consumer services like Uber and Lyft. Uh, my first ride wasn't actually one that I held. We were out and my buddy said, check this out. It was crazy because I was looking at his phone, he clicked a button and he just moved a 2000 pound vehicle. To me, that was like mind blowing. And it was there in like 10 minutes, right? It was like a, an experience that was like a wow experience. So. You know, I think that those experiences tend to grow virally, um, especially. Well, we started seeing other um, products and services um, kind of pop up in on-demand. So like maybe food and drink, even like a car wash uh, company. But, you know, they didn't really take off uh, the same way that that, uh, that ride sharing did initially. And um, so I started to evaluate, like, why? Why are these not taking off quite as fast as as uh, ride sharing and basically made some hypotheses around what a product or service that's within on demand needed to have as, um, as kind of pillars of success, I call them. And one of them is uh, being naturally social. If the product or service that you're offering through on demand is naturally social, in this case that you actually take rides with other people, uh, then it tends to spread a lot faster. And so then I literally looked at every product and service that was out there and uh, cannabis kept popping up as a natural fit. Not being a cannabis user myself, I started doing more research. And it turns out that, you know, 2012, the same year that we got acquired by Microsoft, the majority of Americans started favoring legalization. So to me, that felt like a tipping point. Then I got really excited and I was like, wow, but wouldn't this be crazy to start a cannabis company not being a cannabis user? And I wonder what my family would say about this. <laughs> Keith was incredibly excited, but also a bit wary. Marijuana was still a fringe industry because it isn't federally legal. It operates in this legal gray area, which contributes to the stigma towards the industry as a whole. Keith's family had been influenced by the stigma and expressed some serious reservations about his idea for an on-demand cannabis tech company. The initial reaction was, 
Well, this just sounds like a glorified drug dealing business. Undeterred by the disapproval of his family, Keith continued to develop his idea, and other people started to notice. With the massive success of Yammer, Keith was a hot commodity. His coworkers and friends were excited to see what he would do next. The co-founders at, uh, at Ease are uh, Rory and Alexi. They were actually one of the first customers at, at Yammer. So we had known each other for quite some time. We'd been staying in touch, and um, they kept asking me, hey, what are you going to do next? We want to do something with you. And uh, I was like, okay, I got like a few ideas. Um, so I ran those ideas by them, and uh, they, they were pretty adamant that, you know, we should definitely do that one. And I, uh, I tended to agree. So at that point, we decided to, to, to co-found the company and, and uh, start development. So we started specking it, modeling it out. I mean, you know, creating wireframes and flows. And, and I kind of had a feeling that other people may be thinking about this as well because uh, on-demand was heating up. And being first to market is so important. We learned that at Yammer. Um, so we definitely wanted to get this thing out there. But we also knew that um, once we reveal our cards, then, you know, the race is on. So we didn't want it to be so lightweight that it would be easy to kind of catch up to us. So we developed a lot of stuff kind of in the, on the back end around logistics to give us, you know, that much more of a head start. And how, how long were you guys in development before you released? About six months. What was that release like? We didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't even know if people wanted 15-minute delivery. So there's another model, which could have been our delivery with a different operational model. And, you know, we, we made some hypotheses early on, and, and those were kind of bets. And uh, if we got some of those wrong, it would have once again allowed other people to uh, to, to potentially catch up. Uh, turns out that we got pretty much all of them right, uh, that the data later proved to be correct. It was what I consider to be a sexy a sexy company, right? It was cannabis. It was on demand. It was mobile. It was hitting all the right things that uh, that the reporters wanted to talk about and cover. And so you just got like immediate like press coverage. Lots of press coverage, yeah. Ease gained traction as the marijuana industry hit a tipping point. The legalization of marijuana had finally hit a supermajority amongst Americans, which in turn fueled investor interest. They smelled opportunity wafting up all around California. And that stigma that had made entry into this industry undesirable began to dissolve. I mean, back then there was far less professionalism because there wasn't really structure. There wasn't really uh, clear outlined regulations. The industry was very much used to evading, kind of hiding and running away and doing indoor grows. And, you know, that's not how you win these things, especially if it's the right thing to do. So we operate based on principle. You know, the stigma that existed back then was that people that were uh, in the business or stoners, lazy, just a lot of stuff that wasn't really true. Fast forward today and it's a completely different industry. I mean, this is the fastest growing industry in the world. I think you're seeing, you know, a different profile of operators come in, uh, ones that certainly are, are following the regulations. We're seeing a, a bunch of different investors follow that. I think the stigma, you know, kind of today would be this is a great business opportunity. You know, this is something that overwhelmingly now is supported by by Americans in terms of legalization, like a supermajority. The stigma has, you know, in, in so many ways um, completely shifted and changed. And I think a lot of that's due to services like Ease and provided an experience for people that wouldn't otherwise go to a, a dispensary in the, the seedy part of the neighborhood. And it really drew out the stay-at-home soccer moms. Now, when I say Ease was getting traction, I mean it. Keith and his team had some of the most notorious marijuana consumers advising them on how to proceed. To explain more, I'll let Keith nonchalantly explain how Snoop Dogg and Seth Rogen helped ease out. 
Snoop is extremely smart. Um, obviously, he understands you know the the product very well, and I think the culture even uh, to to some degree. You know, I just think that he had a lot of insight, a lot of firsthand experience, things to look out for. And uh, what were those things? Well, quality. It's one thing to be better, faster, and less expensive, but if you sacrifice like quality of the actual product that you're delivering, for example, and that's how you get to be less expensive, then that's not really what people want. So everything has to be better, right? And that's really how you create these opportunities and. Seth Rogen was another one that was was actually really fun. Uh, I was invited over to his house. He's in the industry. You know, when I was walking through what what uh, what Ease was trying to achieve, it was really answering three simple questions: How do you want to consume it? Right? Do you want to smoke it? Do you want to vape it? Do you want to eat it? Do you want to drink it? How do you want to feel? Do you want to feel energetic? Do you want to feel um, creative? What's the feeling that you want to feel or you don't want to feel? I don't want to feel pain. I want to go to sleep. I don't want to feel nauseous from my chemotherapy. And then the last is how much you want to pay, which is based on, you know, kind of the quality that you want, top shelf, mid shelf bargain. And so I looked at it kind of very much in that way. And he said, you know, Keith, I, I think I think you're right, but I think you may be missing a, a big um, aspect here. Why don't you ask them first, what are you doing? Because cannabis elevates everything that you do, right? Like if I'm going to do yoga, then I understand kind of how I want to feel when I'm doing yoga. Or if I'm going to go to a concert, I know how I want to feel there. But it becomes more experiential, more lifestyle. And it also, um, in a lot of ways, destigmatizes it because... You know, with the proper strain, with the proper type of cannabis, you know, it can elevate everything in your life. Back to Keith in a sec. But first, Adrian, a legal adult and the guy who helped edit this podcast, has a little message for you. What's as great of a feeling as passing that bong around in a rotation? Passing this podcast around with your homies. Like the wise Snoop Dogg once said, it ain't no fun if the homies can't have none. And right now, your homies are having none of this podcast. Subscribe, share, and leave a five-star review. Right now, we are at 33 reviews. So, maybe be our 34th? Now back to Keith while I take another rip. Ease wasn't just elevating its consumer. The company itself had been elevated to become the on-demand marijuana delivery service. It had become the easiest, quickest, most professional way to get cannabis delivered anywhere in about 15 minutes. Education has been key to legitimizing the legal marijuana industry. And Ease has been at the educational forefront by responsibly educating consumers and regulators. With Keith as CEO, Ease had become the largest player in the marijuana delivery space. And being a large player in a growing industry has its perks. Keith and his team observed early indicators of a massive problem that no one was talking about or even noticed. We we're starting to see a lot of leading indicators much faster than anybody else would see. So one of them was friction in the supply chain. When you are really growing as an on-demand company, it basically becomes a, a supply-constrained growth model. It means that the growth is dependent on the supply, not on the demand. It was a leading indicator that there was going to be friction in the supply chain. So when you look at, at the fragmentation and you look at being in the fastest growing industry and you look at the currency in which we're using primarily, which is cash, that moves extremely slow, you have cash flow issues. 
if you don't have cash flow, then you can't put that back into grow fast enough to produce more product. Even before that, I hypothesized that that this was going to continue to once again move towards legalization. We saw that there was um, this four-step process in, in states to move to essentially the adult use uh, legal model um, that we you know we now see in like let's say Colorado. During that those those steps, there's more regulation. And more regulation actually causes even more friction because there's a whole licensing structure, there's testing requirements, there's another set of things that these businesses have to now take care of to one, get a license, and then two, to maintain compliance uh, within the regulation. So, so we thought that it would actually get worse before it got better, and it already was leading to not be as streamlined as what we would like it to be. Looking to find a solution to the friction in the supply chain, Keith made the bold move to leave Ease to start a new company. I think this is why I find Keith so fascinating. Ease was successful. Ease was showing promise, and then Keith just left. He could have coasted on the success of Ease, but Keith is never one to slow down when he sees an opportunity. He sprints towards opportunity. Initially, I thought this guy just got lucky. He's just in the right place at the right time. But as I'm reviewing this interview, I see his strategy. I see his intense reverence of the data. He studies trends and makes decisions not from gut feelings, but from intense scrutiny. And from this intense scrutiny was birthed a new company that would use data to improve understanding of customer ordering behaviors, streamline delivery, and increase customer satisfaction. This company is Wave. Wave is, you know, a B2B e-commerce uh, marketplace uh, with a focus on the logistics aspect that connects retailers and brands through centralized distribution. How most people would probably look at it, if you're familiar with Amazon, is the fulfillment by Amazon model. It uh, basically allows retailers to very easily and quickly um, order and restock their shelves with standard next day delivery and alleviates that burden or that requirement for the brand to actually have to do that distribution. So we provide a service that's better for the brand's customers, which are the retailers, um, and we do that at a lower price than what they could do on their own. With the onboarding of various marijuana brands, there needs to be a centralized distribution that can manage the legal gray area that marijuana currently operates in. Wave has a future. Wave has massive potential. Wave is the Amazon of cannabis. Finally, I asked what advice Keith had for you guys, the people listening to this podcast. Do your research. There's a lot of ideas that would be a lot of fun and on the on the surface really seem like they would be great. And then you peel back a little bit of the layers and, you know, it may not be there. At the same time, don't be fearful of, of starting something and it not working out. You'll understand very quickly whether it's working or not. And in that case, if it's if it's not working, you know, you may want to evaluate whether you continue or you or you explore something else. A lot of people don't even get to that stage. And that's the saddest part for me because I just think that there's so many smart people out there that are driven that have so much potential to add value to everybody around them in greater ways than what they may even know is possible within them. And it starts with, you know, just taking that leap. interviewing Keith, I was a little intimidated. Keith has this way of talking, which is extremely technical and logical. He lays out the data he was working with and then nonchalantly reveals the decision he made. The narrative Keith tells is in stark contrast with many of the other founders I've interviewed. Previously, I heard a lot about grit, heart, or perseverance. And although these can be essential attributes of an entrepreneur, these reverent adjectives seemed more fitting of a knight in shining armor than a businessman. Keith seems to put the heart on hold and simply look at the data and almost defer judgment to trends. And 
it's worked out. Ease is worth around half a billion dollars. And Keith projects that Wave will be his most influential startup ever. Although I don't see myself as intensely data-driven as Keith, I think we all could get more into the spreadsheet thickets and start looking a little bit more closely at the trends of the future. At any rate, I'm excited for Keith, I'm excited for Wave, and I'm excited for the future of cannabis. 